Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Okay, so today my message is titled Gone Fishing. Now, earlier this summer, Rob's cousin came over to celebrate my victory in our annual NCAA March Madness basketball pool. So we've been doing this for about 20 years, and we all make predictions on who we think are going to win each game, and then whoever actually chooses the right winner, that person gets a point. And, um, you know, Rob and his cousin Have they know basketball, right? They know the players, they know the teams, they know the stats, they know basketball. Me, I just overhear what they say. I know nothing about it. And so sometimes I have good choices, other times I go based on the names of the team. So I'm like, Oklahoma, Gonzaga. Ah, Gonzaga sounds like a more fun name. I'll pick Gonzaga. So when I won this year, it was a shock for everyone because no one else thought that I would win. So I am like, we are definitely going to have a celebration. So Have came over, and in the middle of our celebration about my winning the basketball uh, pool, he said to me, Trisha, how many baptisms has your church had in the past year? And that, my friends, is the reason for this today. I thought, well, you know, we were in a pandemic. We didn't have that many. We get it, right? There were restrictions. It made sense that we didn't have that many baptisms. But then I thought back to the years before that. And I started thinking a bit more. What are we doing Water baptism is part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. If you have your Bibles, you can find it. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. I'll just read it. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Water baptism is more than just a religious exercise. It is a part of our spiritual foundation. It's one of those public acts that we do to declare to the world and to the people we've chosen to do life with that you've made a decision to follow Jesus, that you've left your old ways behind, and you are now living for his glory. When my family first became citizens of Canada in my teens, we went before a judge, and along with other people who were becoming citizens that day, we pledged an oath as citizens of Canada. When Robert and I got married, we made a public commitment in front of our friends and families to love each other till death do us part. When I got my credentials to be a pastor, Right here at this altar, I was recognized. There was a public announcement. Pastor Wayne prayed over me as I entered this role. In life, we do things publicly to declare our decisions. So if as a body of believers, we have a very low number of people doing those things publicly, then I ask myself, Are we on mission? 
are we going? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So today we're going to talk about fishing. Full disclosure, I know nothing about fishing. Ori, do you want to put up the photo? This week, I just happened to be at a retreat up north and I caught a fish. Like... It was honestly so coincidental. I had no idea that fishing would have been part of the uh, part of the activities. I caught a fish. I showed it to Pastor Wayne, and he's like, "You know what? I'm going to teach you how to take a better photo at a better angle to make the fish appear bigger." But this is my fish. I didn't put the worm on it. I didn't take the fish off the hook. I literally caught it. I knew when to tug and pull it up, and then they took a photo for me. So. In the Bible, Jesus references fishing quite a few times. So today we're going to work through that. The core passage that we'll be reading today is Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 22. So in, you guys know me, I like to give a bit of background. In Matthew chapter 4, we read about Jesus' first, the start of his public ministry. Matthew 3 and 4 can actually be a really amazing um, movie plot. You know, the son of God, the king of kings, he gets baptized and his, his father says from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I personally think the father sounds like James Earl Jones and Mufasa from The Lion King. So that's the voice I hear in my head. I hear, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes into the wilderness, right? And so you cue the ominous music and you know how in movies there's like the dun dun dun. So that's what's happening now. He goes into the wilderness. Nothing good ever happens in the wilderness, right? He goes into the wilderness and he is tempted not one, not two, but three times. And in each time he's tempted, he delivers a powerful blow back to the devil until the devil finally leaves him Jesus is attended to by angels, and then he starts about his father's business. But his first task is to find his tribe. So I would title this movie, Disciples Assemble, kind of like Avengers Assemble, you know. Okay, let's pick it up from verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called to them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Here's where I want to focus on today. Verse 19, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Simon Peter was also known as Peter and his brother Andrew. You know, I remember, I don't know if anybody else remembers this song, but in Sunday school when we were young, we sang a song, Peter, James, and John in a sailboat. Peter, James, and John. So this is how I remember the names of the disciples who were in the sailboat. But something new is taking place in this portion of scripture right here. There's a shift. In the Old Testament, we read a lot about shepherds, right? There was um, Abraham, there was Jacob and Israel and his 12 sons. And then there was King David and Moses. They were all shepherds. 
in the New Testament is when this profession of fishing actually begins to take center stage. You know, when someone new starts on your job or starts being in charge, you're often like, I hope they don't change much. But the truth is, when someone new comes on scene, there's almost always going to be a few changes. At the start of Jesus' public ministry, he called fishermen. I believe that Jesus was flipping the script in terms of what he expected of his followers. He was doing a new thing, and if we could be 100% honest, Jesus could have done this thing all on his own and been perfect, and it would have worked well. But having people involved in his mission, having people involved in the building of the church was important to him. And having people involved is a key part of church. Of his 12 disciples, none of them were shepherds. There was a tax collector, a politician, and then there were fishermen. So why no shepherds? Maybe there were no sheep at the time. Okay, quick story. Uh, a few, well, at the beginning of summer, one of my friends called. She's like, hey, do you want to go to yoga on a farm with me? I'm like, yoga on a farm, what is that? And so I'm like, sure, well, let's go. So we go, and, no, we didn't go. I'm like, tell me about it. She's like, oh, well, you know, we're going to be exercising out in a field where wild animals are. And you all know me. There is nothing about exercising in a field where wild animals roam that would relax me. So the day comes and it rains. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. You love me. And she messaged and she's like, uh, we're going to do it inside the barn. I'm like, inside the barn? What is wrong with these people? Like, I don't even get it. So I'm really like now regretting my yes to spend time with my friends. So we go and actually it was quite beautiful. The barn was beautiful. It was lovely. Instead of wild animals, we had baby puppies. There were puppies all around. Like, so while we're exercising, there's puppies everywhere doing whatever puppies do. But after the owner of the farm knew my friend and she knew she had a horse and she loves animals. So she took us on a tour of this where we would have been exercising. And there were sheep and there were donkey and there were horses. So I just told you that story to tell you that I saw sheep at the beginning of summer. So sheep weren't extinct. So why didn't Jesus ask, or why didn't he have any shepherds, right? Um, as a matter of fact, we see in John chapter 10, Verse 1 to 2, we read about the good shepherd and sheep. John 10, 11, uh, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So even though Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd, he didn't pick a team of shepherds to lead and to train in his service. It would appear to me that Jesus was intentionally avoiding choosing shepherds to grow the church. So today, we're going to look at what it was about fishermen that Jesus found so endearing to place them as the leaders of the church and her continuing mission. So when you think of fishing today, I'm not sure about you, but I think of a solo sport. Like I think, you know me, I'm holding that fish just by myself. I don't see it as like a team thing. And obviously, you know, it feels a little sad and lonely to me that people are just out there by themselves fishing. But let's have a look at the fishermen of Jesus' day. 
So here are a few things I learned. I learned that the fishing industry was strenuous work and it needed major organization. Sometimes two or three boats would be set up and they would set up a lure in the middle of them to catch fish together. Most fishing was done at night, but during the day there was always a lot to do. There was the cleaning and the prep for the next expedition. The fishermen themselves, probably the most influential, they probably weren't the most influential people. Um, you know, they were probably rough and tough and a little smelly, which for the record should be nothing that we as Christ followers should have. Um, and it was usually a family business or an occupation. So Peter and Andrew were brothers and James and John were brothers. So there, were, there was a family thing. Now, the key is that fishermen had a sort of grit determination, passion, and heart um, that Jesus knew would be needed to build his church. Even after the crucifixion, when the disciples didn't know what to do with themselves and they went back to fishing, Jesus called them again and said, hey, I need you to go back and fish for men. Jesus has always extended the invitation to us to fish for men. But you know... What is really important is that these fishermen were really the center of what God was going to be doing at that time. Sometimes I forget what I'm supposed to be doing. I forget where I put things. I forget my birthday. I don't forget my birthday. I forget my age, which really is not intentional. It really just happens, I think, after a certain age. So you forget your age. Um, when the kids were younger, I would forget when pizza day was, and then I won't send them with lunch, and then I'd get a call saying, your kid doesn't have lunch. I was that parent. I forget things. And when I forget things, I feel very, like, I feel really bad about it, because what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not doing. So I'm not productive when I don't do the things. Our mission is fishing for men. So the question is, if we're not doing that, how productive are we? So what does fishermen look like? What it does not mean, fish, fishing does not mean, um, you know, again, that picture that I had, hooking and baiting and finessing people with scripture to get them to feel guilty and shame about their lives. That's not at all what fishing is. Those images all have to do with line fishing, not net fishing. And in the Bible, we read nothing about line fishing. It's always net fishing. And what's the picture you get with a net? The picture I get is of care and protection, and I don't get that with lines. You get hurt and bad and not good. So that's the first thing. So the first thing is fishing. We're not trying to finesse people into the gospel. What is involved with fishermen is a lot of hard work, a lot of long hours, and sometimes, if we were to be honest, very little results. How many times do we read of the fishermen being out on the water and they caught nothing? And Jesus talking to them and getting them to go back out and then they have the big catch. Regardless of the results, Jesus is looking for these characteristics. People who are determined with passion, grit, and heart. Because the results aren't our responsibility. But everything we do before is. Obviously, we know shepherds make great leaders, but he wants fishermen. Of the 12 disciples, the three who were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, 
They were fishermen. And, you know, John often referred to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. What a guy. I like him. It takes a team of spirited men to work long hours catching and hauling fish. And that tells me that fishermen were probably very social people. They weren't loners. They did things together. And I think that Jesus had that picture of a community like ours where we do all the things together. We eat, we pray, we, play, we laugh, we learn. We do all the things together. I think the disciples would have been really cool to hang out with. But that togetherness, that spiritedness that the disciples have, I think that's a huge part of being a disciple of Christ today. You know, they had responsibilities. What they were doing, they were dealing with God's most prized possessions. But you can't tell me that a group of spirited, um, you know, loud men wouldn't have a few belly laughs every now and then. Sometimes I walk into certain settings, not AC, of course, and I'm like, man, the vibe is so sad here. Like, I'm not even interested in what's happening there. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and there's another table right next to you and they're loud and you're like talking to whoever you're with and you're like, I wonder what's happening there. Friends, what we do is serious business because it involves life and death. But it's okay to lighten up. It's okay to um, do things that bring you joy. Turn off the end times commentary. You know how the story is going to end. Shut off the news. Get together with friends and your neighbors and celebrate the now. By your life, you will draw them. And if your life doesn't make anyone curious, if your life makes them want to run in the next direction, then something's wrong. Okay, don't misunderstand me. Being a Christ follower comes with our own crosses. We know that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But Matthew 11, 28 to 30 also tells us, and I like it best from the message version, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Work with me, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the beautiful paradox of the cross. When we lose our life, we find it. Taking up our cross and following him means we have unlimited access to an unending grace that he will give us what we need to carry our crosses easily. So does your life lead others to Christ or away from him? Research shows that most people do feel a little ill-equipped or um, anxious about the thought of sharing their faith with others. So let's lean into that a little bit today. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 14, 11 to 13, sorry. And so this says, so Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. So Christ himself gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Here, Paul is outlining the different ways that God equips his people for service. Verse 11, it lists prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And verse 12 tells us that people in these roles are specifically equipping his people, who are the people not in those roles, for the works of service that build up the body of Christ. So rest easy. The tension you feel, it's normal. Now go with me to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 to 6. Thank you. Um, it, so it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. This is Paul writing here. He says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It seems to me that the us that Paul is referring to in verse 3 are the pastors, evangelists, apostles, teachers that we read about in Ephesians chapter 4, 11. So if we don't all have the gift of evangelism, what does that mean? How can we be fishers of men if we don't have the gift? Well, go back and let's read verse 4 to 6 again. Uh, Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So those not gifted with the gift of evangelism are supposed to pray for those who are, so that they will communicate the message clearly, be wise in how they act and interact with others, make the most of every opportunity of connection with others, and have conversations that are seasoned with grace and salt. So in other words, the Trisha translation of Colossians 4, verse 2 to 6 is pray like crazy for pastors, evangelists, teachers, and live lives that draw the interest of others. I've heard it said that we are called to live questionable lives. And being questionable, questionable is not typically not seen as a good thing. But let's read 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If we have to give answers, people must be asking questions. Live questionable lives. We studied the book of Ephesians just before uh, the summer break with our young adults. And Jessie Lynn, she led a session and she summarized our call as Christians in three words. Live life differently. So, missional living, fishing for men, boils down to living our lives differently. Story time. It's quite, this is how the church was built. Here's something I learned during my research for this message. Peter and Paul, they were 
going through the Roman Empire, preaching and teaching people. And at that time, there were ordinary believers who heard what they were doing, who started living their lives differently. These believers cared for the poor, fed the hungry, um, took care of the homeless, the widows. They were doing all of the things. They were doing numerous acts of kindness and all of the things that they should be doing as Christians. They were doing so much that a fourth century emperor, Julian, caught wind of it and was concerned that the Christians would take over the empire. Now, history books added the name Julian the Apostate to his name because he attempted to move the Roman Empire back to paganism after Constantine. So this man, this emperor was worried. He thought that all of the kindness of the Christians would turn them away from the state and turn people away from dependence of the state. So he set out to outlove the Christians. He started a food distribution network. He started like taking care of those who needed care. He was actually quoted as saying, for it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans, which is how he referred to Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. So these Christians were making him feel just a little embarrassed about what he was doing. He felt threatened by those who were living their lives differently. His plan failed, surprise, surprise. He simply could not convince the people to um, outlove or, or outcare the Christians. And so the Christians of that day led questionable lives. They lived life differently. They made Christianity attractive to the people that they lived with. It's not surprising these days to see big corporations and even regular everyday people caring for the poor, doing everything that the Christians of that day did. Now, if these big businesses with massive budgets are taking care of things on a macro level, then I want to suggest to you that we need to work smarter as Christ followers. And maybe it's time to get down to the micro level. Michael Frost, a leading voice in the international missional uh, church movement, he says, evangelistic mission works effectively when we are living generous, hospitable, spirit-led, Christ-like lives as missionaries to our own neighborhoods, and when the gifted evangelists in our midst join us in sharing Christ with our neighbors. That's not just good evangelism strategy. That's the biblical model. Jesus gave us this model in Mark 12, 30 to 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Imagine what it would look like if we all collectively set out to impact our city, Aurora, Newmarket, Oak Ridges, wherever you are from and actually live out the command to love our neighbors. Loving our real life actual neighbors. Just before I was talking to Sharon and she said last night, they just got some neighbors together in their backyard. And they were just, it was the first time she said she did it. And that's exactly what we're called to do. Love our neighbors. You know, Rob is a great neighbor. He's super good at loving our neighbors. 
Our neighbor, she's a single mom with two kids, and he shovels their driveway when, his, when her daughter was going off away to university. We had a whole bunch of like dishes and cutlery that we weren't using anymore, and he gave it to her. And he was like, here, you know, this is for you to start your new place. He's so good at it. He knows their names. And me, on the other hand, I feel ashamed to say that I'm not the best at it. I'm always the one running in to get dinner ready. Um, but a few months ago, I got a text from one of our neighbors. It was a Saturday morning, and we were at Longo's and uh, just catching out. And she's like, Trisha, if you're around, can you come by? And I'm like, uh-uh, there's a pandemic out in these streets. <laughs> I'm not going into anybody's home. No, I'm joking. But I've never gotten a text like that before. So I'm like, okay, Rob, we've got to go home. I'll go see her. So we drive home. Rob goes home. I go to the neighbor's house. And she is in tears. She received a cancer diagnosis. Her husband um, was separated from her, and we didn't even know how could we be good neighbors and, you know, just not know that this major life change has happened. The two daughters she adopted um, left home. She was in tears. It was a lot for me in the 30 minutes that I sat with her. I can't even imagine what her life over that year of being home in the pandemic was like. I spent some time with her, prayed for her, organized to bring meals over. And guys, this is what loving our actual neighbors look like. In order to take the great commandments and the great commission seriously, we must create space in our lives to build relationships with others. And the best way to start is with those around us. One of the biggest challenges of taking the great commandments seriously is time, right? I've been there. I'm still there on some days. Um, I've heard a saying that we make time for the things we love and the things we find important. So every time I think, I don't have time to get to know my neighbors. Now I reframe that with, my neighbors aren't important to me. When you reframe it, it feels a little different. Your lack of time feels a little different. We all lead busy lives, but you know who never did? Jesus. He got a lot done in three years. And the other interesting thing is that he was never in a hurry. We never read in the Bible about Jesus running somewhere or jogging. He was always walking. Everywhere in scripture, it said he walked. Noah, my kid, he's so cool. I mean, the sky could be falling, and he is never in a rush. Like, I am like, knees to chest, Noah, knees to chest. Walk like you have some urgency. Walk like you have some place to be. And no, no, he's not having it. Last weekend, we went away for his birthday, and we were at a hotel, and 4.30 in the morning, we hear an alarm. So I look at my phone. I'm like, why did I put my alarm on? Look at my phone. It wasn't an alarm on my phone. Nudged Rob and I'm like, Rob, get up, your alarm. He looked, no alarm. And that's when we figured, oh, it's the fire alarm at the hotel. If you have ever, ever been at a hotel with a fire alarm, it's like so nerve wracking. So I'm like, Rob, get up, get the boys. So we're trying to call Noah's room. Him, he had like three friends with him, trying to call his room, no answer. So we finally get in touch with him. And we're like, okay, Noah, that is the fire alarm. It's 4.30 in the morning, so we have to speak really slow. That is the fire alarm. Get your friends up. Meet us in the hallway. Oh, my gosh. 
Guys, it felt like the entire hotel emptied and we're still waiting for Noah and his friends. And the thing is, is that they all had to bring their shoes with them, you know? Like, their shoes were the most important thing. It's 4.30 in the morning on the streets of Toronto. Nobody's looking at your shoes. But they all had to get their shoes. But the one thing I would say is that he did bring his key, and Rob and I forgot our key. And we're like, thank you, Noah, for being responsible. Thanks for bringing your key, because we, we left ours. We wouldn't have been able to get back into the room. Anyway, everything Noah does is a slow movement. And Jesus, he never rushed. He never ran. He always walked. He always made time for people. He shared meals. He made time for hanging out and having conversation. He even made time for interruptions. In Luke 5, 17 to 18, Jesus paused his preaching to heal the paralyzed man. In Luke 8, 40 to 48, he paused what he was doing because he felt the woman with the issue of blood touch his garment. And then he healed Jairus' daughter. In Mark 1, 35 to 39, Jesus was trying to get some peace and quiet and the disciples came looking for him. He always made time. I once read that when you talk about a generational occupation like building or fishing, the way you become skilled at the craft is to learn about it, the tools, the language, and then perform the craft day in and day out. So how can we practice being fishers of men day in and day out? Because honestly, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how many charities support. It doesn't matter what you do. Unless we are not, it doesn't matter what we do if we're not doing what the mission we're on. If we're not intent on doing everything or even just anything to be in lives with those we work, play, and live life with and to show them the transforming work of God then it really does mean nothing. Do you live life differently? Do you live questionable lives? Do you take the most out of every opportunity? We naturally declare to people, we share with people what we find interesting. You know, a few years ago, a friend encouraged me to try natural deodorant, man. It's great for your body, she said. It doesn't have all the chemicals and Wow, guys, honestly, I don't know if there are any natural deodorant users in here, but once you're on that journey, it requires more than just living on a prayer. Let's just say I am no longer on that specific health journey, but for the year that I was, every time I would find a new deodorant, I would message my friends and I'd be like, oh my gosh, okay, this is the brand, take a photo, this is what I loved about it, this is what I didn't love. We talk about what we're excited about. If you want to know a good restaurant, you know to come to me. I know them all. I will tell you where to go, how to make reservations. I'm just that person. So living missionalized, fishing for men, requires that we are propelled outwards into the lives with others and deeper in intimacy with God. Missional, missional living, fishing for men, needs to be part of our DNA we have to recode and retrain our brains to make these things a habit. And I'd like to suggest to you that with us recoding and retraining our brain, that we're really just setting our brain back to the default from which we were created. Because we were created to be in relationship with God and people. 
if we grow in intimacy with Jesus, our heart will break for what breaks his heart. Our eyes will be open to the things he sees. Our ears will hear what he hears. That friend who really doesn't sound like she's doing too well, but she's saying she's doing well. Our mouths will be open to share about God. We become more motivated to share about Jesus and the gospel when we've experienced him. We've got a test, when we have a testimony, when we have seen his beauty, we are more motivated to talk about him. So Jesus calls us to follow him and become fishers of men. The call is the same call that Peter, Andrew, James, and John got. And the need to know, the need for people to know Jesus as their savior is the same today as it was in those days. We're called to live our lives differently, to love our neighbors, and that commandment is still relevant today. The tools we use might look different, but the commandment is the same. Jesus will never ask anything of us without giving us what we need to accomplish the task. He asked us to fish for men. There are people all around us. He asked us to love our neighbors. Everybody in this room has a neighbor. He tells us to go make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he follows that with, you better believe I'm with you, not just until the end, but until the very end. Who knows the end and the very end are very different. We this summer, we went with some friends, uh, another couple, to see Fast 9. And when the movie ended, as the people were leaving my girlfriend, she said to me, let's just stay back until the very end. Sometimes they show things. And so people are leaving, and sure enough, at the very end of the movie, we saw a bit of a preview of what's to come. Jesus promises to be with us until the very end. When he asks us to do something, he gives us all that we need to accomplish it. We are not alone in what he calls us to do. He is always with us. And Holy Spirit is always working. So the nudges that you feel to linger in your front yard a little longer, to smile at the cashier, to say hi to that little kid who's running, riding their bike up and down the street in front of you, Lean into those nudges because the Holy Spirit is always working and he wants you to partner with him to tell others about the love of God. Follow Jesus. Grow in him and propelled out to others. That's Bible. And coincidentally, that's what Aurora Cornerstone is all about. Our vision here is to love God and each other. Grow together and serve God the world. How are we doing on this mission? Um, Paul Harvey says, too many Christians are no longer fishes of men, but keepers of the aquarium. Our job is not to be aquarium keepers. Our job is to go and fish for men. And we can do that more easily when we are in an intimate relationship with God. When we've experienced him for ourselves is the best way we can do that. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit 
auroracornerstone.ca.